Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Um, I'm okay. I'm very tired, but it was nice to spend today mostly just thinking about Scream Scene. Yeah. We've had a very busy week for a lot of different reasons. I've been extremely busy at work between three different, basically, grants that I had to write and then having one of our uh, shows on uh, this week. So I've been working really hard. Sarah, you've been working really hard at your job with product launches and all kinds of other things coming up. Yeah. And we've both been working hard about castle scream scene yes yes so we are entering into the realm of property ownership there's still like things are still up in the air and we don't know what's going to happen like a flock of bats (laughs) we can never seem to nail something down right so you know if that happens we're going to be moving from renting which is what we've done till now to owning and that's a big step and there's just been A lot of stuff going on. Those of you who have owned property know, I'm sure, the amount of work that it takes to put that all together. So we've had a long week and I'm tired. Yes, I am also tired. Uh, Also, the um, frat house that's two doors down from us had a very raucous party last Uh, night. Yes, so tired. uh, Our provincial government decided that COVID is over and lifted all the restrictions everything um despite the fact that we still have about seven thousand active cases in the province and so but you know they've stopped testing and monitoring those so you know the seven thousand cases don't really exist ben so the frat house (laughs) two doors down decided that it was time to have a covid is over party so that kept us up quite a while we've been pretty lucky to have lived next to a frat house during the pandemic when even when they've had parties they've been like limited in how many people they could have and so on yeah this was the first like full scale like they invited half the university yeah kind of party like i think they were having like little drag races down the street like it yeah it was a little much um but you so know, we're tired we're tired we're old and tired mm-hmm. but what are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching It, The Terror from Beyond Space from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. So if memory serves, according to Star Trek, hmm. our universe is contained within like an amoeba? No, our galaxy is hemmed in by a uh, energy barrier that if you pass through it and you have ESP will turn you into a god. However, invaders from outside our galaxy that penetrate within it are attacked by giant amoeba creatures that serve as the galaxy's antibodies. Okay, that's where I'm getting things from. So this would be beyond that barrier, right? Yeah, if this is, I mean, if this is beyond space... It's from outside of... Known reality. Exactly. Damn. Yeah. So as the title suggests, this is a sci-fi horror film. (laughs) 
But if it is higher in quality than some of its contemporaries, it is perhaps largely the result of its screenwriter, science fiction author Jerome Bixby. Okay. Drexel Jerome Lewis Bixby was born in 1923 in Los Angeles. Starting in 1949, uh, he began to have his short stories published in science fiction, adventure, and Western pulp magazines by publisher Fiction House, which also published comic books, which were based on their pulp magazines. So basically throughout the 1950s, Bixby had hundreds of short stories being published and then like adapted into comic books. Um, Bixby also worked as an editor on these magazines and comic book series. His most famous short story is 1953's It's a Good Life. (laughs) About a three-year-old boy with godlike powers who holds his small town in the grip of fear. What was in the water? There's like so many Star Trek episodes about that. So this... (sighs) This story is very famous. Oh, did this um, it's kick been, off the trend? This has been adapted several times as a 1961 episode of The Twilight Zone, as Joe Dante's segment of The Twilight Zone movie, as Bart's Nightmare in Simpsons Treehouse of Horror 2. Um, it also got a sequel in It's Still a Good Life in the 2003 <laughs> episode of The Twilight Zone starring the original cast. Oh, dang. Um, like, this is the story about the little boy where everyone has to pretend to be happy or else he'll, like, turn them into horrific monsters or send them to the cornfield, whatever that means. <laughs> it's a very famous story. In 1958, he wrote It, The Terror from Beyond Space, as well as its co-feature on the double bill, The Curse of the Faceless Man. Uh, which I promoted at the end of last week's episode as being what we were going to be watching this week, but it's the B picture. So we're actually going to be doing it next week after this film. Okay. In the 1960s, he would write the adventure film Rampage in 1963 and the science fiction film Fantastic Voyage in 1966. Oh, I love that movie. He also wrote four episodes of the original Star Trek. Okay. Did he he write Charlie X? Please tell me he wrote Charlie X. No, he wrote Mirror, Mirror... Mm. inventing the mirror universe which star trek still fucking goes back to all the time now by any other name which is the episode about um amorphous tentacle monsters from another galaxy who have assumed human form in order to take over the enterprise turn all of its crew into small white cubes and then bring the enterprise back to that galaxy yeah and the crew defeats them by getting them either drunk or horny or angry Uh, He also wrote Day of the Dove, the episode in which Kirk and Kang, the Klingon commander, uh, are set to war on the Enterprise against each other uh, by a non-corporeal being that's taking advantage of their emotions to feed on their hatred for one another. And Kirk and Kang have to, like, start laughing and having fun together despite their prejudices in order to defeat the entity. And finally, Requiem for Methuselah the episode about an immortal being who has been many different famous earth figures throughout history and now lives all by himself on a desolate world with his android daughter who Kirk falls in love with. One Uh, of these is not like the other. mm. (laughs) Bixby's final work was a screenplay entitled The Man from Earth. And Bixby died in 1998 before that film could be made. uh, But his son saw it produced in 2007. Okay. The screenplay for It would be produced by Robert E. Kent, and the financing would come from executive producer Edward Small at United Artists. The picture was directed by Edward L. Kahn, 
whose work we've seen a few times in the past. Uh, he was born in Brooklyn in 1899, and he started working for Universal Pictures while still a UCLA student in 1917. He worked initially as an editor, including on The Man Who Laughs, and then his first picture as a director was in 1931. From 1939 to 1943, he directed the R Gang shorts, and he directed his first genre picture in 1955 with Creature with the Atom Brain. He followed this up with The She Creature in 1956, and then Voodoo Woman, Zombies of Moritau, and Invasion of the Saucer Men in 1957. The film stars actor Marshall Thompson, who was 32 years old at the time of the film's release. Have we seen him before? Yes, okay. we've previously seen him in Cult of the Cobra and Fiend Without a Face. Always Cult of the Cobra. Well, that's what happens when you have like five of these guys together in one movie. Sure. Yeah. The female lead for this film is played by Shirley Patterson, who is credited here as Sean Smith, as she would be at certain odd times in her career. Uh, she was born in 1922, uh, which means that she's older than Marshall Thompson. And she was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Winnipeg? And she grew up in East End, Saskatchewan in Canada. Oh, my God. Uh, before... True child of the prairies. Right. Before her family moved to Los Angeles. Okay. She was a beauty pageant contestant in her teens before being scouted and signed to Columbia Pictures when she was 19 years old. She played Bruce Wayne's love interest, Linda Page, in 1943's Batman serial. Okay, so we've seen her before then. <laughs> and while she acted steadily throughout the 1940s, her career slowed down in the 1950s due to the end of the studio system. It would be her final film. Shortly after filming finished, she would shatter her leg in a skiing accident. Oh, damn. Her leg would be in a cast for the next 18 months, and after that, she made the decision to retire from acting. Yeah, damn. Other familiar faces in the cast include Dabs Greer, Paul Langton, Robert Bice, and Anne Doran. So the film was shot in 12 days okay. in January of 1958. And the monster suit would be designed by Paul Blaisdell, ah. enjoying a larger budget than his usual AIP jobs. Blaisdell initially thought that he would be wearing the suit himself, as he has done every single time mm -hmm. in the past. Um, but that turned out not to be the case here. Um, things were going to be working a little differently because this was United Artists, not AIP. And so with a higher budget, there was a lot more like oversight sure. from producers and executives over what Blaisdell was doing. Uh, executive producer Edward Small um, decided to cast a like experienced stunt person inside the suit as the monster. And in this case, he decided to take some pity on an old friend of his who was going through some hard times with acute alcoholism, Ray Crash Corrigan. Oh, the return of Crash. I'm sorry to hear he's fallen on hard times, though. Yeah, so Edward Small wanted to kind of throw Corrigan a bone, basically, yeah. and give him some work. Now, because of that alcoholism, Corrigan was not easy to work with at this time. He'd been semi-retired for some time at this point, mostly making money off of renting his ranch out as a set, uh, Corriganville. 
Blaisdell needed Corrigan to come from Corriganville to Topanga Canyon, where Blaisdell lived with his wife and um, assistant, Jackie. And uh, Corrigan said no and just sent Blaisdell uh, a pair of his long johns and was like, build the suit around this. This fits me. (laughs) Um, Now, Blaisdell didn't have any measurements of Corrigan's head. Um, he just had his own plaster mold of his own head that he used to make masks in the past because he was the one playing them. them. Yeah. yeah. Now with the higher budget, um, Blaisdell was able to like make molds for everything and like use a much higher quality of material and detail than he usually got to. Um, but he did have to use this set of long johns and this plaster cast of his own face to make the measurements for the suit. Now, when Corrigan put the suit on, on the first day of shooting, it was discovered that Corrigan's head is much bigger than Paul Blaisdell's head. Oh, no. Um, If it was smaller, they could, like, figure out what to do. mm. Oh, no. Specifically, the issue was that Corrigan has a very large chin. Oh. And now, normally in the past, Blaisdell had always been on set for when his suits were on set. But United Artists had been like, yeah, we don't need you on set. Why would we need you on set? You're just the guy who makes the suit. You at least need him on set for the first time, dudes trying on the suit. So they call Blaisdell. They're like, okay, actually, we need you on set because we need you to fix this. So he shows up. And basically what he had to do was he took the lower jaw of the monster's face and sort of detached it so that the mouth would open and then fitted Corrigan's chin between the upper jaw and the lower jaw, since there was no room for it in the mask otherwise, and then put makeup on Corrigan's jaw to make it look like the monster's tongue. Oh my god. What a way to fix that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's some real quick thinking. Blaisdell also did things that he wouldn't have gotten to do in the past, like make uh, multiple copies of parts of the monster like just the monster's arm for a shot where you didn't want to put corrigan in the whole suit just because it was going to be just the arm uh scene things like that now the suit design originally featured blaisdell's trademark like cat eyes that all of his monsters have um he had been told by the producers um that they didn't want to have those kinds of eyes because it would mean that like the eyes wouldn't move so they sure. wouldn't look realistic. But the director, Edward L. Kahn, who had worked with Blaisdell before on the She-Creature, and in fact was the only person in this production that Blaisdell knew uh, before this, had said, no, the monster needs to have eyes. I don't want it to look like human eyes. So Blaisdell made some of his signature cat eyes and put them on the mask. And then the producers hated them. They were like, these are the worst, cheapest looking piece of crap <laughs> eyes we've ever seen. So they made Blaisdell remove the eyes but the mask had been designed to have these eyes on them. So it wasn't really fitted to like allow for Corrigan's eyes to be used as the real eyes. So in order for Corrigan's own eyes to be used, Blaisdell had to come in on set and basically take some rubber latex and fill in the gaps between the eye holes and Corrigan's own eyes to make it look right. The problem with this is that it led to like most of Corrigan's peripheral vision being blocked out like he could see if he looked straight ahead but not really 
to yeah. any other direction. Well, also the design of the mask is going to be completely off now because it would have been balanced for these large eyes. Mm-hmm. So he's basically filled in those gaps with this rubber latex. Because Corrigan couldn't see and also because Corrigan was drunk most of the time and he didn't really give a shit, there's a moment in the film where he has to look up and he looks up and he can't see because of the uh, the latex. So in the movie itself, he visibly like reaches up and grabs the back of the mask and pulls it back so that he has more ability to see. Like he's adjusting the mask on his head in the film so that he can see. Some other examples of Corrigan's disagreeability. Uh, He refused to put the mask on, like just have the suit, but without the mask for a shot where only his shadow would be seen because he was like, I'm not putting that uncomfortable mask all the way on when you're not going to see my face. But this means that the silhouette of his shadow doesn't match what the creature looks like with the head on. Come on, dude. Now, Blaisdell had always been unsatisfied with the low budgets he had at AIP. Um, He was sort of doing his best, but really wished he could have made his monsters with more time and money. He was never really happy with how any of them ever turned out. So here he had that extra time and money, but he discovered that the flip side of the higher budget was that he was treated like dirt. Um, At AIP, there was a kind of like family camaraderie. Like, yeah, Blaisdell felt that he was never given the time or the money to do what he wanted to do properly, but he never felt like Roger Corman disrespected him. Well, yeah, he like (laughs) there's less people involved. So the people who are involved have they have closer ties. Yeah. And their voice counts for more. Mm -hmm. Whereas here he had the feeling of just being sort of a cog in the machine. Mm -hmm. um, And the only person he knew was the director. So... It, the terror from beyond space, would be Crash Corrigan's final film. Uh, He was like, yeah, no, don't need this shit in my life anymore. Um, And he he would pass away at age 74 of a heart attack in 1976. It would also be the final monster suit of Paul Blaisdell. Oh. So Blaisdell was so burned out by the process of making this movie that he became very reluctant to do future work. He does do some work on a few movies after this, um, but it's to create oversized props for some Burt I. Gordon movies like Earth versus the Spider and Attack of the Puppet People. Sure. Projects with sci-fi monsters, in addition to like Blaisdell's own reluctance to do them, would end up kind of drying up completely though um due to the success of hammer's supernatural horrors uh, which would lead to american producers like aip to kind of go in that same direction so for example roger corman ends up uh shifting to doing like edgar Allan poe adaptations starring vincent price Mm -hmm. that don't require these sci-fi monsters with um sci-fi movies kind of drying up in that way most of the existing market that still wanted to go see sci-fi monsters was easily satisfied by importing Toho films to the U.S. rather than making homegrown content. Sure. And then, of course, by the time that the 60s come around, you have sci-fi on TV. Mm. In 1959, Blaisdell appeared in his final film, Ghost of Drag Strip Hollow, for AIP, uh, wearing the she-creature costume for a third time. Ghost of Drag Strip Hollow is a teen 
like what were they called like drag strip movie like yeah, like car movies car movies um but it's a parody of them and oh, it's interesting. it's a comedy whereas those movies tended to be more like juvenile delinquent style movies yeah um and it was sort of seen as the forerunner of what would become aip's big genre in the 60s which was beach party movies sure um now it's also a parody of horror films um because the plot line is basically a scooby-doo episode it's about a bunch of teens down at the beach who discover a haunted house and they eventually discover that the monster in the haunted house they unmask him uh it's the she creature is the monster but they unmask him and reveal that it is paul blaisdell who has become deranged and seeking revenge on the teens who have stopped going to sci-fi films (laughs) leading to him not being able to get any work anymore amazing um now, Blaisdell found this to be a really fun movie to make at the time, but later in life, he would sort of blame it for, like, killing his career at AIP. Oh, he, sure, putting the nail in the coffin for him. Exactly. Um, so after this, Blaisdell tried to develop his own movie trivia magazine to compete with Forrest Ackerman's Famous Monsters of Filmland, although a lot of, like fandom's awareness of paul blaisdell comes from famous monsters of Filmland, which featured him in a big profile in its first issue um but blaisdell figured like why do interviews for someone else's magazine when i can make my own magazine and so he created fantastic monsters of film but that magazine only ran eight issues before the printer burned down his own facilities in an insurance scam (laughs) what a twist So Blaisdell, jaded and broken after this, became a carpenter and refused all offers to return to film work, even in the 70s from people who were fans of his 50s work. Oh, that's sad. He lived with his wife and creative partner, Jackie, as a recluse in their Topanga Canyon home until he passed away in 1983. Devoted to her husband to what is an irrational degree. Jackie stayed in the house after Paul's death, never leaving. Oh. The house was destroyed in a mudslide in 1989. Nobody was aware that anyone was still living in the house because Jackie never left the house. So no one would go search. No, the house was basically just buried in this mudslide. Everyone had kind of assumed that Jackie had like moved back out to the East Coast to live with her parents again. So it was years later when the house was being excavated so that new construction could be put in that area in 2006 that her body was discovered. Whoa. It is generally thought that she didn't die in the mudslide. Um, yeah. That she died of starvation in the house. Uh, several years before oh because she didn't never left never left as in wasn't buying groceries and things okay well (sighs) so it the terror from (laughs) outer space was released on a double bill with curse of the faceless man on august 14th 1958 by united artists The film is considered a cult classic, and its most lasting legacy may be that it is one of two films, along with 1965's Planet of the Vampires by Mario Bava, that served as the primary inspirational sources for 1979's Alien. Whoa. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, you're going to see it. You're going to watch this movie and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, 
this is alien. Oh, no. Yeah. Aliens are really scary, Ben. Well, this movie's from 1958, so you'll probably be fine. Okay. <laughs> it, The Terror from Beyond Space, <laughs> is available to rent on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Microsoft, and it is available on Blu-ray from all of films. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm, I'm now really looking forward to it because I love seeing how things develop as seen by this podcast. Hopefully folks can find a copy to watch along, uh, especially because this is a more readily available film that we are covering this week. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss it, the terror from beyond space from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching It, The Terror from Beyond Space, directed by Edward L. Kahn from 1958. Sarah, what did you think? Very interesting. Um, Definitely a very good science fiction movie. Um, I think it's a good horror movie as well, but like, I think this is definitely something people should watch if they are interested in sci-fi. Yeah, there's a lot of things to like about this movie um it's a good fun little little watch and if you haven't checked it out and you like the alien movies i think you'll find it really entertaining to check out yeah absolutely so why don't we talk about what happens in the film well it's in the far off future of 1973 that's right as they say And we enter with narration from Colonel Carruthers, the only surviving member of his nine-manned and womaned crew to Mars. Um, Now, when we pick up with Carruthers, um, there has been a second mission to Mars to basically rescue whoever might have happened to survive the crash onto Mars. And... Because they only find one surviving person, they are bringing Carruthers back to Earth to be tried for murder slash court-martial because, like, well, clearly you you killed them for the rations, like the dark side of the Martian. Mm. However, Carruthers' story is that uh, actually we, we landed and as soon as we landed, we immediately lost contact with Earth. We started going out exploring in our Jeep, you know, as you do exploring Mars. And we suddenly got overtaken by a sandstorm. During the sandstorm, something was attacking the crew. Something was attacking the Jeep. Um, We started, like, firing rifles at it to no avail. And I was the only survivor. And I couldn't find any of the bodies. Now, the second mission is led by Colonel Van Heusen. Um, People call him Van, so I think Van is his first First name name. rather than like a Dutch kind of name here. Um, And then we also have Eric Royce. And amongst the crew, um, the two that I will specifically call out right now is uh, Dr. Mary Royce, who happens to be the wife of Eric, and Anne Anderson, who is like basically the girlfriend of Van. Mm -hmm. Though she like clearly like 
they've been like dating for a bit but it's not like oh I'm just here because I'm the girlfriend like she's here as a scientist and as a nurse a bit the reason I'm not going to go into everyone else is because this is a nine person crew there's a lot of people here and I don't need to say everyone's name kind of the principal tension between the crew though is people going like well did Carruthers kill everyone or is his mind just formulating like an explanation when like he really did kill them because he went crazy like was it just the sandstorm what what actually happened before we leave Mars um they dump some cargo and we see that something and it if you were comes aboard through the hatch they launch they are now traveling through space to come back to earth and it begins killing first uh, a guy who just heard some weird noises and then suddenly everyone is like well wait where did that guy go and then they do a search and then like during the search someone gets got um so you know we're killing people off pretty quickly that's why there's so many people here When they do find the first guy dead, he's been basically stuffed up a chimney Um, and they find him with all of his bones broken and he has kind of this shriveled look to him. Dark eyes, very pale, and after they do an autopsy, they discover that all of the fluids and oxygen from his body has been drained Um, and through like an osmosis thing, not through any kind of puncture marks. But there's no like circles left on his skin or anything like that star trek episode with the salt monster now in facing off against it they try keep in mind we're on a rocket ship they try grenades guns gas bombs and they all fail this thing is unstoppable i also think it's worthwhile to point out that like one of the confrontations with it takes place in like the vents of the ship yeah In one setup, let me back up before I get into the setup, actually. It's a rocket ship, a vertical rocket ship. And the way that they have the sets set up is that it has multiple levels, which is like a neat thing to do. It's also a really clever thing to do because I think it's the same set with different dressing absolutely for each is. level yeah, yeah. so, so there might be like one or two differences maybe yes. yeah I, well okay there's that cargo room and then there's like the main set yeah. i think yeah so um yeah it's clever uh but anyways let's say we have seven levels i it doesn't matter at the amount the creature it is in like the lower levels and keeps chasing them higher up to try to outwit it um two peoples go outside uh through an airlock um walk along the side of the ship with no tethers by the way rookie move walk down to the bottom of the ship come in and basically try to set up a trap to electrocute it and that fails and it fails so hard that uh, one guy is actually trapped on that level. Um, he's stuck between these two big pieces of equipment and is keeping it at bay using the welding torch. And we do have a good line from Eric Royce saying like, but if it damages that equipment, we won't be able to land and we'll just drift forever in space, space, space. Huh. So as the movie continues... Um, As I said, it is pushing the crew higher up these levels. And during 
that process, Colonel Van is actually injured. Um, his leg gets mangled up, and he develops an infection from alien bacteria. And it's making him go a little loopy. One case of his loopiness is um, Carruthers, Eric Royce, and a guy whose name is Bob. Yes, Bob Finelli. Um, our, Gino is his brother. Yeah, a lot of relationships on this. Yeah, rather than a, just coworkers. Yeah, there's like a set of brothers. There's a married couple, and then there's like a guy and his girlfriend. Yeah, I feel like you should split these people up for future missions. Um, fictional NASA. <laughs> Anyways, so Carruthers, Eric, and Bob are heading down because they need to get more um, medical supplies. And as they head down, uh, they know that it has wandered into the reactor room. So Van, being loopy, overpowers his nurses and makes it to the control center to open the reactor because he's like, the radiation has to kill it because it's like nuclear powered. It would kill all of us. No effect. Does make it angry, though. Finally, we are in the last level, the control room. With only Carruthers, and Eric Royce, and Dr. Royce around, we do have uh, three injured crew members, uh, Van, Major Purdue, and Lieutenant Calder. Um, and Calder's the one who's still trapped on the lower level. Yes. So um, as they're in the control room, they bring out a bazooka, and they're like, this is it, the standoff. Either like, it wins and kills us, or we kill it and make it to earth. And they then take a look at like all these dials and notice that their oxygen consumption is up by like 40%. And they're like, Oh yeah. Cause like it ha must have like massive lungs to deal with the low atmosphere on Mars and like, is like taking oxygen from its victims. So clearly if we just vent out all the oxygen, through like opening an airlock and we put on these spacesuits, um, we'll be able to kill it. Now, I will say two things about this. One, I will give the movie some credit in acknowledging that maybe these characters throwing off uh, grenades and firing off guns and smoking like chimneys hasn't actually been great for the oxygen consumption either. But it's been pointed out that no, 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 this is, this is more than even that would have all eaten up. Two... It is a little embarrassing that it takes 90 minutes, essentially, for this team of scientists to figure out that depriving the creature of oxygen will probably kill it. I don't think you needed to have the breakthrough of it uses a lot of oxygen to understand that no oxygen would be bad. No, they should have done this first thing. It's stuck in the lower level open it up like even when they go in to like electrify it I thought there was going to be something anyways yeah I'll, I'll talk about I thought there was going to be something mm. uh later on so they open the airlock it suffocates now in the scuffle to uh because it's like bursting through the door in the scuffle to open the airlock and decompress the chamber um Van gets up overpowers his nurses again and uh goes and like hits the button but in that scuffle he gets killed he basically sacrifices himself it is set up that he is going to die from the bacteria but anyways he sacrifices himself and as the movie ends we get a close-up on Carruthers and Anne holding hands the end 
No, no word on whether they actually make it to Earth. We do see that there's like a reporter conference saying like, yeah, no, that was a creature. And that's like Crothers didn't murder anyone. It's fine. They'll come to Earth sometime. <laughs> so the things that I thought were going to happen then, mm. I thought when they were going to go down, because we don't know what the plan is when they're walking that's outside right. the ship. I thought their plan was to like lure it outside or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's to electrocute it. Which, like, okay, yeah, I've seen the thing from another world, I understand. (laughs) Uh, And it fails miserably. And I thought that there was going to be a thing where, like, maybe the injured guy, maybe Carruthers, who's the other guy down there, would find a way to lure it out the airlock in some manner, like sacrifice himself or whatever. Right. Um, But that didn't happen at all. And then because of the way that the bacteria is progressing and it it feels like it implies that uh, anyone who has like survived an attack is infected with this bacteria. Um, I thought the higher oxygen levels were going to be that Van and the other injured crewmen were going to turn into these things. Right. Yeah. Um, Not necessarily a chest burster scene because I know that that was a big thing in Alien that was like totally unexpected uh but i thought that was going to be something like that sure yeah i thought that was going to play into so early in the film when there's this question of like did carruthers kill his men or not and he's like no the monster killed them they're like well we found the remains of this dude and there's like a bullet hole in his skull so what monster kills with bullets and his thing is like, well, we were all shooting in the sandstorm and maybe, you know, he got caught in the crossfire or something. But I really thought, yeah, that there was going to be something where like they became monsters. And so he had to kill them was wh- where I thought that was kind of maybe going to go eventually. Yeah, something um, like that. But yeah, it just doesn't go there. Now, there is a lot of stuff to like in this movie. Yes. Um, once again, as in Fiend Without a Face, Marshall Thompson gives a solid performance as a likable and practical military man. Um, I really like him as Carruthers here. And while the body count here isn't as high as Alien, um, there are still a good number of fatalities. Uh, five out of the ten characters. Yeah, we're not going to count the crewmen who died before the movie started, right? Right, so. yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> There are also some good horrific moments at one point. The so there's this character named Gino and he's the brother of Bob. And when they first find the first guy uh, whose name I think is Keinholtz, they find him squished in the um, vents, the chimney. Yeah. And then they go looking for Gino in the vents and they find him still alive. But he's like been sort of like half sucked up like a juice box he's not like quite (laughs) fully empty so he's got like the sunken in eyes and the wrinkles and he's clearly like far gone um but he tries to warn uh major purdue before the monster shows up um but the monster shows up and uh purdue narrowly escapes and they leave gino behind and there's this conflict through the movie with his brother being like we should go down there and find him and it's like no there's nothing we could have done and all that but the moment in the vents where we like first find like half devoured Gino is very like good as a horrific moment. I think so too. Um, because especially when he started moving, I didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you're, it's a very tight shot because we're in vents. And so they're making it feel claustrophobic, Mm -hmm. especially here. And then just out of like the side of the screen comes like the monster claw. It was really good. 
It was really good. Another really good horror moment uh, is when Van gets injured. So the creature basically comes bursting out of a um, hatch and like starts clawing at people's legs and it grabs van and knocks him over and then it's clawing at his foot and basically what we see is like through van's boot and through his skin and like all the way down to the bone the monster basically just fucking shreds his foot in one swipe yeah which was like a really cool shot and was really um surprising to see like that kind of um gore like it's a very quick shot but still um it was a good moment yeah they do a lot of really good things to make sure that you're feeling the tension, um, both in terms of like you're stuck in this ship and like you're fucked. Um, but to make it feel claustrophobic, part of that is like there's a lot of people on set all the time, um, but the sets feel tight. It doesn't feel as claustrophobic as in the vents all the time, but they make sure that you feel like, yeah, you're just stuck here on this level. You can go up or you can go down. Yeah, the levels are circular because we're in a tube. So basically you can see the walls at all times. So that helps you understand that like this is not a big cavernous space, right? And I think if there is sort of a central thing... Uh, a central innovation, I would say, that this movie has that Alien takes from it. It is that sense of claustrophobia, as well as I think Bixby's like central clever idea here is you're trapped with the monster in a place that you like cannot leave. Yeah. You know, it's important that the monster starts attacking after they've lifted off and they're in space. Because like... You're not turning the ship around. You can't escape. It's yeah. it or you. Exactly. Yeah. I I think they also really emphasize that with like there's a lot of constant sounds and hums, but it's different with each level. Mm. Um, so you really get a feel for like the characteristic of the, the place. And that constant sound is taken away when they go outside the ship. Yeah. Now... I don't know if I've mentioned it on this podcast, but space is fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever there's a shot of like people going outside the ship, I think it's because I watched 2001 Space Odyssey too many times. But like, yeah, but you also like did not enjoy gravity. Well, no, like, like that's the point of gravity, For right? Sure. Like they're exploiting that. But yeah, I don't like it when people go outside of ships um because it feels so claustrophobic and it's such a strange sense of claustrophobic because it's like no it's too open right and it was so interesting how like well a i was surprised that they made it so quiet yeah that they actually did the no sound in space thing yeah now they did have some narration uh like voiceover um and that it feels like a studio exec being like it's too quiet here put in some narration Mm -hmm. um but it really emphasized that, like, they they really are stuck. Like, the fact that they don't have any ropes on them, like, one wrong move on their grab boots and, like, okay, bye. Right. See you never. <laughs> yeah. Um, the movie does a really good job of doing little things like that to establish the ship as an environment. Yeah. Um, the creature suit isn't bad. I really like the design of the face. It's yes. kind of like a vampire bat 
mm-hmm. looking face. And honestly, you can like if you know that his chin is there, you can see it. But I thought it was a really unique way to change up the face. Like it I think it works. Yeah. Edward L. Kahn rightfully keeps the monster in the shadows yes. for most of the movie. But I feel like he was maybe a little bit too careful with not showing the face because maybe he was worried about the the chin thing um, and the eyes not being perfect. Yeah, there's a couple shots where um, it's like Crash is like purposefully hiding his face with the claw. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, I understand why they're doing that, but I don't think they needed to do no, that. No, the face is the coolest part of the suit. Yeah. Um, because the rest of the suit is built on this set of long johns. And because of that, um, the monster has no waist. Like there's no hips to it. And so whenever Crash like moves along his waist to like bend over or turn, you see all the wrinkles in the costume. And that ends up getting shown way more clearly than the face. And I think that hurts the movie because it makes the suit obviously a suit. But I do think Khan does a lot of great shots with shadow and light to kind of obscure the suit while letting us see the monster and what it's doing. Yeah. I will also point to, um, as you set up in the context setting, Corrigan's uh, indifference, Mm -hmm. I guess, about the movie or about the suit um, impacting like how effective he is. Like there were just a couple times where like he started to behave more like an ape than as an alien. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because he always like what I really liked about his apes was that he brought like a sense of like, innocence to them Mm, right sometimes they would just be like oh well what is this and it's like yeah that's a shoe of a woman you just murdered Mm -hmm. um and he's did that a couple of times here and it's like why are you doing that here you're not an ape it kind of makes me question like was that you just like doing whatever as an ape and i just attributed it it to you being a good performer when you were actually not or is it just because you're not trying here i think it's the latter i think it's that like he is in ape mode. Sure. Like it's like you're in a monster movie and you're in a suit, you know, and he's not really like paying attention. So he's just kind of doing what he always does because you're absolutely right. Um, he gives a really basic and uninspiring performance here. And I think it really goes to show that like who you put in the suits matters. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, he's just like not really trying. He kind of just like walks around with his arms outstretched and sort of bashes people over the head with them his and size is good. He's yes. a big boy. Yes, that's what works for his advantage for yeah, sure. Yeah. Because yeah. if I recall, Blaisdell, you know, is, is sizable, but like Blaisdell not wide is, like yeah, this. Yeah, Blaisdell's like 5'8 is the thing. Yeah. So there were always difficulties when he had to like carry women in his arms and stuff, as you may recall. Yeah. Yeah. No women carried in this film. No, it's actually a little weird. Um So the women are never directly put under threat from the monster. They're always just support characters to the men. Now, on the one hand, it's disappointing that they're only support characters to the men. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, they're not here to be the victims? Weird. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. When you get introduced to the whole crew, it's like right at liftoff and like a dude's being like, hey, sound off. And we get like close ups of everyone. So we know who everyone is. Right. Um, And I was like, oh, sweet. 
couple ladies. And they also kept saying in this crew and in the first crew as well, that it was a crew of men and women. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's really cool. Like they're acknowledging like multiple gendered missions to Mars in 1973. Okay. Interesting. And then it's like, okay, well, one's a doctor. The other is like a scientist. Cool. But then they're shown like, cooking and cleaning yeah so they perform the feminine roles on the ship like they are the caretakers right and before we know that like one's a doctor and one's a scientist that's how we're introduced to them and it's like are they only here to be your like caretakers like your housekeepers yeah so they make the food they fix the drinks um but even the fact that they're like a doctor and a nurse puts them in a very like traditional feminine role because they're here to take care of the men right yeah um it's weird they it feels weird that these characters are here because normally if you're going to shoehorn in some women into a setting where it's a little weird to have them the reasons you see that done in old movies is a for sex appeal b so the monster can threaten them and c for like love interest which we do get we do get c right but the character of anna feels like very vestigial like the question of whether she's going to choose van or ed is like not really framed as very important it's just kind of here because bixby figured like this is what you're supposed to do in these movies there's one moment where Anne is patching up Carruthers's forehead Mm -hmm. and we cut to that scene with her finishing kind of talking about like how she got here saying like so after my my failed marriage, I decided to go into science, whatever. And he goes to respond in a way that would show like, yes, a budding romance or whatever. And the camera just cuts away. Yeah. Like we're just like so not interested in hearing about these two people fall in love. Yeah. And she doesn't even actually make a choice between the two of them. Van just sort of conveniently dies. Yeah. And then it's just implied she's going to end up with Carruthers, but like just implied because they're holding hands at the end. It's not like, really firmly established one way or the other so it's just like very strange her character other than this doesn't do anything um mary at least like is the doctor and so she's like we need to get that blood and like he's got bacteria and like no 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 here's the results of the autopsy right exactly where yeah um anna says she's a scientist but we really only see her do nurse things and the nurse things we see her do come down to holding injured people's hands and dabbing at Carruthers head with a like Q-tip when he's got like a bruise. We've already talked a little bit about some of the similarities with alien. Mm -hmm. And I think like definitely the feeling of like being trapped an unstoppable monster. Um, None of which is like wholly unique to a horror movie. Sure. Um, but what's unique here in it from beyond space or whatever, like is the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like this movie almost gives like a loose blueprint of plot beats. Oh yeah. 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 Like we have, we land on a desolate planet. We find a crashed ship. We go out and we bring back, you know, something from that ship. A monster gets on board. We're having to like close down areas of the ship to try and keep it contained. Yeah. Nothing we can do to stop it helps. Crew members are getting picked off left and right. Um, 
often like in the cargo bays or the vents and all of our like clever schemes don't tend to work and then at the end of the movie we kill the monster by like blowing it out the airlock essentially yeah i'm surprised you didn't bring this up but like after they bring something on board but before they know that anything's wrong there's like a dinner scene where it's all everyone like joking and talking about what they're going to do when they get back to earth yeah which has a very similar scene in alien yes no chestbursters here though no I sort of alluded to this before, but these people are smoking aboard a spaceship. Yeah, they it's are... so weird. Like, there, there are things done to make this feel like, oh, yeah, this is, for lack of a better word, like, serious sci-fi. Like, we're taking this seriously. We're not just, like, having phaser guns or whatever. Like, yeah. Like, we're taking this seriously. We got airlocks. Uh, we won't be able to land and we'll just float in space forever. Right. Um, but then we're like throwing grenades around. Like they put eight grenades on a single vent. Right. And then when the grenades explode, like they do nothing to the ship. Like they do nothing to the monster either, but they just kind of like blow the vent open. And that's kind of all they do. But like we're throwing off grenades, we're shooting guns and we're doing like gas grenades and we're firing like a rocket launcher at this creature and as you said they are chain smoking yeah and they're chain smoking and it's like so nobody cares about the oxygen levels the ship itself is i guess made of vibranium (laughs) and also for like a mission a rescue mission to mars to pick up the crew of a ship we know crashed and then we lost contact with it why did they bring on like a whole fucking arsenal? Like once they know the creature is real, everyone gets like an M15. Like everyone, <laughs> like there's like m- magazines of bullets. Like, you know, two people have rifles. Why are we armed for bear on this mission to Mars to rescue some people? Space bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's, it's a little fucking hilarious. Yeah. It's great. It, uh, it's good. Um, I enjoyed it. I, yeah. I thought it was quite fun, but it's it makes you go like, how serious is this sci-fi? Right. It's not as good as Alien, of course. Of course. But it is good. It's fun. It's definitely worth a watch. And the last thing I wanted to point out is, um, so in like the beginning and at the end, we have like a scene that's on Earth that's mm. like... Um, a government official giving like the press, like here's what we know. Uh, at first it's to give exposition of like Carruthers being tried for murder. And then at the end, it's like, there was a monster, but we're fine. They'll be here any day. Um, and I forget what they call it, but the, it's like this fake, like space exploration department. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah. Cause like NASA wouldn't really be a thing. Right. We looked it up. NASA was created and founded in 1958 in July. So when they were making this movie, no NASA. Movie comes out, yes, NASA. Right. So it's just kind of really neat yeah, to think it, about that. For sure. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like when I um, told a friend of mine who was watching original Star Trek for the first time, like, oh, yeah, this show was coming out during the Apollo program. Like, man hadn't landed on the moon until the like around the time the last episode came out but like they reference man landing on the moon as a thing that has already happened on the show because like the moon program was happening at the same time you know so it's always kind of cool to to think about those historical events and the context that they give these movies which i mean of course it's really cool that's the premise of the show that's what we're doing here. yeah but um 
the other thing about that final press conference is the government oh, official yeah. is like best line. Yeah, he he's basically like um the word for Mars is death. Right. <laughs> that that reminds me, they do have a theory for what this creature is. And it's like just an armchair theory because mm-hmm. it's like the crew in the midst of this crisis. But he, the guy's like, if there was a civilization on Mars and it crumbled due to pandemic or war, not anything that we can relate to. Climate change. Yeah. Um. So the Martians reverted to barbarism and into an animalistic state. And that's what this creature is. Right. Yeah. So... Let's talk about where we want to rank this movie. Absolutely. So I have a pretty narrow range that's also kind of just a spot. I also kind of just have a spot. Okay. Well, here's where I started. I immediately went to The Thing from Another World. Fair. um, Which, by the way, is an accurate title, The Thing from Another World. Um, This movie's title is not accurate because it's within our space like it's it's, it's, it's literally mars. from mars yeah it's literally it the terror from mars yeah not from beyond space yeah whatever anyways so i first went there the thing from another world is ranked at number 27 and i was like okay well i think that they handled the horror more intensely in this movie because we're just scrambling whereas the thing from another world everyone's like yeah let's do the plan look at our like efficiency and operations but the thing from another world had social commentary to it and this film doesn't there's there's nothing there good movie but there's no social commentary there no line that's like you know, watch Keep watching the, the stars. Yeah. We, well, we get Mars is death. Which is like, I guess uh, Mars is the red planet. So Russia, communism, red death. Yeah. No, there's nothing there. So I was like, okay, well, I'll make that my ceiling for now. And then looking down, I was like, oh, X the Unknown is at number 30. And then Fiend Without a Face, which also has Marshall Thompson, is at number 29. Now, Fiend Without a Face is much scarier, much more wild. Like, I think it's just um, probably a better horror movie. So, um, X the Unknown, this is the one with the blob. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that that was really inventive because, you know, we were surprised to see a blob movie before the blob movie. Right. This movie, It, uh, the terror from outer space, (laughs) not the clown, is providing a blueprint for Alien. Right. But that's more like forward-looking for like how it's going to be used later yeah not so much what it's doing right now mm-hmm. so i felt like below x the unknown i'm like there is the return of the vampire at 31 good movie sets itself in that um present time of 1943 of like during war or post-war it's Britain. during I war forget. like it's it's the only one of those like 1940s monsters movies that acknowledge that world war ii is happening Yeah, and so that's part of why it ranked on the higher end. It also has, like, some really unique things going on. But I was like, okay, I would feel comfortable putting it, the creature from beyond space, where the Return of the Vampire is, so right in at 31. But like I said, there is that little bit of range there. Okay. Um, I agree with you that this isn't as good as Thing from Another World. I think the set pieces in Thing from Another World are better. Yeah. Like, where it, like bursts out of that door from the greenhouse and the scene where they set it on fire which goes horribly wrong for them by the way 
Yeah, I think the thing from another world has better set pieces. Um, Fiend without a face is absolutely scarier because it's just like, what? Yeah, is happening. It's wild. Um, I um actually started in a different spot though. Oh, I just sort of thought about last week's movie, which really impressed me, and I was really surprised by. I was going into last week's movie expecting it to be very bad, and I really enjoyed it. This movie, I was expecting sort of a prototype alien that would not be as good as Alien. And that's, that. that's what I got. That's exactly what I got. Um, so I think I liked The Screaming Skull more. Below The Screaming Skull is Black Cat Mansion, which is very inventive um, in that wild and wacky Japanese horror way. And below that is El Vampiro, which asks the question, what if Dracula was trying to do like a weird will fraud in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I thought this was better than El Vampiro. So I made my spot number 49 between Black Cat Mansion and El Vampiro, which means there's a 20 movie uh, gap roughly between our two spots. The midpoint of that is Mad Love at number 39, which has right above it Curse of Frankenstein and right below it The Walking Dead. Oh, that's hard. Uh, Mad Love's visuals are so stark, but mm. it also is stuck adapting a bunker's detective novel. Right. And it's not super interested in adapting it either. Like it comes up with this totally different story to like wrap the movie around. But I also don't feel like it's comparable to curse of frankenstein because that's like revitalizing things walking dead is super interesting and it's weird like god sends his zombie (laughs) avenger against the mafia like plot line um right below those movies also are classics like the phantom of the opera cat in the canary vampire i will say i think it the terror from space is probably scarier than The Walking Dead. Mm. The Walking Dead is a very fun ride. Mm. You are excited to be there and watching. Uh, there was no really any moments there where I was like, oh. Yeah. And I definitely went like, oh, when they found <laughs> the arm in the chimney. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's also a moment that's like exactly an alien, by the way. Like the dude sort of backing up and the arm coming down from top of screen and he kind of like backs into the arm and turns around like that's right in Alien. The Walking Dead is in the evil must be punished. Yeah. Subgenre of horror where all the bad things happen to people who had it coming. Yeah. So that also makes it feel a little less scary because it's like, well, I'm not in the mafia. (laughs) I don't need to worry about God wreaking their revenge on me. (laughs) So, yeah, I would propose to put this above Mad Love, but below Curse of Frankenstein. Okay, I think I'm good with that compromise. So entering the list at the new number 39 is It, The Terror from Beyond Space from 1958, directed by Edward L. Kahn. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. 
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review, tell your friends about us, spread the show on social media, or if you have the means, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and patrons of all levels get to participate in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode, Votes. This month's poll features a selection of movies that were close runner-ups in past races. So decide the best of the runner-ups by heading on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. I know you already mentioned it, but um, can you remind me, what are we watching next week? Well, next week, Sarah, we are watching the bottom half of this double bill, also written by Jerome Bixby and also directed by Edward L. Kahn. It's Curse of the Faceless Man. Amazing. Looking forward to it. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.